0: Well, I want you to imagine with me for a second. If you have to close your eyes, go for it. No falling asleep. All right? No falling asleep. Not yet. which sermon just started. All right? But if you need to imagine with me for just a second, for some of you, this will be really, really, really hard. And for some of you, it'll be just hard. I want you to imagine with me that the year is 3000 BC. There should be no one old enough to remember that day here. I don't think at least. Um, 3000 BC. And let's just, let's just imagine that you are an average everyday person in an average everyday culture living in an average everyday 3000 BC culture. You're just, you're an average Joe or an average Jane. And let's just say you have to do something that's really quite, quite, quite basic to us. You have the basic job of, let's just say your basic job is you need to go get some clean water. You to get some clean water, water to drink, water to maybe cook with, water to do whatever you need water to do with, all right? And so they don't have these magical pipes in their houses that you just turn on a faucet and so and water magically just appears. It's perfectly easy to drink. So it becomes a little bit of a different situation. And not only that, but not only is it just harder, but something that's a simple, mundane task to us today was actually quite a religious experience for someone living in 3000, 3000 B.C., you see, if you're an average everyday person in an average everyday culture living in 3000 BC, you are part of a polytheistic religion of some sort. Polytheistic is a fancy word to say, many gods, all right? You believe that there are many different gods and goddesses, deities and, and, and idols of sorts that we would call them today, that were over and reigned over different areas or parts of life. All right? and so there might be the sun god who reigns over the sun and when it sets and when it rises. There would be the god of the harvest, which was also usually the god of fertility. Don't ask me why. Um, and uh, and but the god of the harvest, so they were over the fields and the and the crops and birth and all these different things. There were gods of the animal world. There were gods of the water and of the moon and of the stars of love. All these different aspects of life had gods or goddesses, deities of various different types, and they all, for the most part, had certain acts of worship, certain um, shrines or places of worship that you would have to go to or engage in certain acts of worship to be able to appease the gods. And so simply going somewhere to find a clean water source could turn into quite the religious experience because my guess is you might have to walk during... The daylight hours, so you might need to worship the sun god to make sure that, you know, it doesn't get too hot and, you know, kill you or that you know, maybe the sun does come out. and It's not the most horrible drenching rain type of your entire journey, all right? You might go by a field of sorts or maybe need to pick off some some grains from a field that someone had planted to be able to sustain your journey. And so you would probably need to do some sort of act of worship to the god of the harvest or fertility to be able to engage and go past those fields and to make sure that they would Bless that. You might, you know, maybe you get hungry and need to do some hunting, and so you have to go and do something for the god of the hunt and the god of the animal kingdom. You get to the water, and oh, there's a god or goddess of the water as well, so now we better make that god or goddess happy, and then we've only just done half our journey. We've just gotten to the water. We got to go all the way back now, all right, and do the same stuff going all the way back, and it turns into this rather religious experience, and this was the norm. 3000 BC, almost every culture in the entire world, this is the way you most likely would have lived. It wouldn't have been weird. It's weird to us, but it wouldn't have been weird. It would have been normal. What was weird was in the midst of this world, there was a ragtag group of people that were leaving a nation called Egypt as a bunch of slaves around this time period, being led by a guy who really didn't look the part, Moses, who was leading them and was right on the banks of a river called the Jordan River, about to enter into this promised land that God had said that their descendants would be able to have for the rest of all time in history. And that God turned up and says before they enter into this land, he says the words of what is now known as the Shema, what Ben read for us this morning. A passage of scripture that to this day for devout Jewish people is still recited on at least a daily basis. It's a scripture that is formative for the Jewish identity in who they are as a people. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And not just that, then, then, then poster it all over your house, <laughs> these words as well. Wear it on your forehead and phylactery boxes. If you go to certain places, you'll see these boxes that are on people's heads or on their arms. Put them on your door frames and remind yourself all the time that the Lord is one and that Lord has a name and that name was Yahweh. Yahweh is Lord not just that, then then teach them to your kids, all right? Teach this to your kids so your kids will remember it and and engage with it as well. Do this. This is who you are supposed to be about. We look at these words in Deuteronomy, and for many of us, it's like, yeah, 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 so God's one. What's the big deal? But this is absolutely revolutionary for the time period that God speaks these words through Moses into the nation of Israel, into the people of God, in a world where everybody else was going after this god or that god or this goddess, or I had to go to this place to appease that god or goddess, or I had to go to that shrine and offer worship, or I had to do this thing over here or that thing over there, and I had all these different things to be a part of, God speaks into that space and says, there's one God, my name's Yahweh, and I am Lord of all. That Yahweh is Lord of all. All things. That there is no this God and that God and this thing and that thing and this deity and that deity, this shrine and that shrine, but Yahweh is to be the Lord of all to you. You are to live as if Yahweh is the Lord of all. You are to act as if the Lord, Yahweh is the Lord of all, which means, or should have meant, that you will look vastly different than the rest of the world looks because the rest of the world is constantly going after appeasing that God and that goddess and that thing and that thing and is constantly offering a sacrifice here and a sacrifice there and a sacrifice there, appease this thing, appease that thing. But you are to be solely focused around the truth that Yahweh is the Lord of of all. Very quickly in Jewish history to give you a little bit of a history lesson, this Shema is this passage of scripture known, which just is the Hebrew word for hero Israel. That's all it is. There's nothing that important. Um, But it's just the Hebrew word for that. And it's what it's been termed is the Shema is, not, is, is, this, is this passage script that, that focuses them in that God is one, God is the Lord, God is Lord of all, and he is the only Lord of all. And this Shema quickly became this, this idea that because God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength, then there can be no attachment to any other gods or goddesses at all. That that there was to be no other attachment. You can't have this God and this goddess, but then Yahweh's kind of like the big God over top of them all, but we're going to keep these other little gods. It doesn't work like that. From the very beginning, this Shema was supposed to change the entire landscape of who the people of Israel, who God's people were. It was to involve loyalty and obedience. It's the kind of loyalty and obedience, if you think of like a child to their parent is supposed to have. I guess, um, you know, um, before they're teenagers, um, and, or, um, or sort of a vassal to a lord, if you remember your medieval history, someone who is renting property from a lord who owns the property type of thing. It's this idea of complete and utter obedience and loyalty to that person, and it's not to be, it's supposed to be something that is not a disembodied loyalty or faith. It's something we live out. It's something we engage in. Everything we do is supposed to be a testimony that Yahweh is Lord. That's the way the people of God were supposed to be. Now, if you know any sort of history from the Bible, that was a great plan. <laughs> and the Israelites mess it up all over the place at every turn, it seems like. Very, very quickly, for a little bit, they do, they do seem to do okay. It's not perfect, but they seem to do better at the beginning, and then. but very quickly, we start to see that there are temptations after temptations after temptation after temptation for the Israelites to do the exact thing that God said not to do. That the exact thing. God says, Yahweh is Lord of all and there are no other gods besides me and you are to worship me and to live out of that worship of me, of me. And constantly they go back to, and you'll read it throughout uh, even 1st and 2nd Samuel, some of the judges into the Kings and Chronicles. You'll see them talking about the Baals that they constantly worshiped at the altar of the Baals, which was a local god of that Canaanite area where the Israelites were um, settled. Or the Ashtoreths, the Ashtoreth Poles. Uh, the and were a goddess of fertility of that area as well. That they constantly are are adding these other gods and goddesses in. In. They're trying to be like the rest of the culture around them, but the funny thing is, that they never stopped worshiping at the temple. Temple worship never stopped until this thing called the exile happened, when God sends, you know, allows for Nebuchadnezzar to come in and Babylon, and they all get sent off to exile. But up to that point, the temple sacrifices continue. And what happened was the exact thing that God was like. Don't let this happen to you. They decided they could worship Yahweh, but also be like their neighbors. They could worship Yahweh and say things like, Yahweh is Lord of all, but then I'll also give my little worship to Baal over here, or I'll also make sure I you know, do my little thing to Ashtoreth. We're not going to talk about what that little thing was because it's gross. Um, but this little, these different cults that were going on around there. I can, basically, the idea was I can, I can have my God, my Yahweh, but I can also kind of be like everybody else in the process. I don't really need to look any different than the rest of the world. And so God, God's story with his people is constantly this back and forth They run off in temptation towards these other gods and goddesses, adding them into this religious life that they're creating. And then God reminds them, usually through some sort of tragedy or judgment type of act, that uh, I'm Yahweh, Lord of all. Those other things have no power, are really not gods at all. And there's this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But then if we fast forward 3,000 years from the time that I told you that you were getting a glass of water in a polytheistic culture, what happens is that another revolutionary event occurs in the life of the people of God. A baby was born in a manger in an event that we're going to celebrate in just a couple short months, really, really short months um, that are coming way too quickly. Um, in a couple short months, we'll remember this story of a baby being born. Not just any baby, but a baby who was Yahweh with flesh on. Yahweh in person. Human Yahweh. The Yahweh who stood... Before Moses and said, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and soul, and strength. That Yahweh put on flesh and entered into the world. And what happened was this, this, this claim that Yahweh is Lord of all, Yahweh is the one above all, Yahweh is the one who is Lord of all, and we are to live in light of that idea of him being Lord of everything in our lives. This whole idea then does not change, but all of a sudden we have a person to look at to show us who that, what that looks like. All of a sudden, in Jesus, we're reminded that that same idea, Yahweh is Lord of all, is simply reinstituted in a revolutionary way to now the confession of the Christian church at its very basic core is Jesus is Lord of all. If you want to get down to the basics of what a Christian believes, the very, very basic belief is Jesus is Lord of all the Yahweh who put flesh on and entered into our world, lived the perfect life, died on a cross for the sins of the world, went into the grave fully dead and rose fully alive three days later and is now at the right hand of the father is Lord of all. Not Lord of some, not Lord of Sunday morning, although that too, not just Lord of that devotion time when you wake up in the morning, not Lord of the sleepy prayer that you fall asleep in right before you go to bed because you forgot to talk about him the rest of the day. I get it, I've been there. What Jesus shows us is that our loyalties to God and our confession that he is Lord are to be aligned around his person and around his work. About Jesus who is now Lord of all. This is the most central basic belief that some of you are even going, yeah, Pastor Brian, got that one, like learned that in like children's church. I remember that one really, really, when I was really, really young, or I remember, you know, yeah, that was one of the first things I learned. It's, it's one of the most basic beliefs. It is the most basic belief of the Christian church. You basically can't be Christian if you don't believe Jesus is Lord of all. But it might be one of the most difficult, far-reaching beliefs when we realize what that claim really means on our lives. It might be one of the hardest things to live out, one of the simplest things to say, and one of the hardest things to live out. Because when we say that Jesus is Lord of all, that means he's Lord of every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our families, every aspect of our job, every aspect of everything of who we are and everything we engage with in the entire world. In our lives, there is no sacred and secular division anymore if Jesus is Lord of all all things. We don't get to go to a secular job anymore because guess what? Because you are Christian and Jesus is Lord of all, your job, no matter what it is, no matter how mundane it is, is sacred space now because Jesus is Lord of that job. You don't get to go home to your secular household anymore because Jesus is Lord of all, all right? And so he's Lord over that household, even if it doesn't always feel like it at times. He is still Lord of all. You don't get to go hang out at the bar with your secular friends and go do your thing and act like Jesus isn't there because he's Lord of all. He's still Lord of the bar. (laughs) Nazarenes don't like to admit that, but he is. (laughs) He is still Lord of all. This idea that Jesus is Lord of all is so hard to live out. It is so hard to live out in our lives because while we laugh, like it was even funny as I was trying to think of a, that, that a story of 3000 BC, like it's just almost comical to think about what life was like back then, like, like, cause it just seems so far fetched from the way we live, right? It's really not that far away. It's really not that far away, is it? It may not be simply getting water because we figured out a way to put that in our homes pretty efficiently and pretty cl- in a pretty clean way. But there's so many other things in our lives, simply running from here to there, doing this or that, that we've simply just gotten more sophisticated in what our gods and goddesses, shrines and altars look like than they did during that time of 3000 BC. It's not that they aren't there, It's not that they don't happen, but it's just that we've called them different things than gods, goddesses, shrines, idols, and those types of things. And in fact, Christians, maybe most predominantly, often have said those things are good things to do in many cases as well, because we too, just like the people of God in the nation of Israel, want nothing more than to be like everyone else and still have our Jesus. We don't like to say it that way, but oftentimes that's what we want. When Jesus calls us to live counterculturally to the way of our world, we try to figure out the way that there's a loophole in there somewhere, right, Jesus? Like, like there was that one little tag of that second half of that verse that seemed like you might've been saying that's okay to do this, so I'm gonna use that as my proof text when there's like an entire passage about not doing it. We have gods and idols just the same as any previous generation did. The problem is often they're personal to us. And sometimes they're really neutral things, but they end up taking the space of a god or a goddess in our lives because we've given them that sort of ability or authority in our lives. If you don't think that there's god and goddesses in our places and shrines and cathedrals for worship, just flip on a television, turn it to Fox or CBS in about... Mm, an hour and a half from now. And you will be whisked into a world where there's a cathedral where thousands of worshipers will come and enter one large facility. They will go through the liturgy of the religion. They will sing the national anthem together. They will have the planes fly overhead. They'll wave the big flag on the field, all right? They'll announce the play, the starting lineups from the players as they come out of the tunnel with fog and smoke machines, just like some churches have, all right? It's, they'll have the whole thing all set up and, and everything else, and people will exalt and pray Together, when touchdowns are scored, and people will lament and mourn when interceptions happen, or just when the Redskins take the field because of the Redskins. Oh. Cheap shot, but I love it. Um, <laughs> cheap shot from the Eagles fan. Sorry, guys. Um, I know you win one Super Bowl, and all of a sudden you get all cocky about it, right? Um, but for many. That game is just a harmless fun thing to watch on a Sunday afternoon, but for many, that's a god, that's an idol, and they offer their, their, their offering to that idol every time they pay $300 for a seat in the upper deck. Every time you pay at the concession stand, the sacrifice has been given. Maybe you're not a football fan, but maybe there's a certain place. You'll probably drive by a couple of different types of places that tend to be shrines for some of us or idols for some of us at different points in time. One of the idols maybe is this building. They have, they've now figured out how to put a drive through into it, which is pretty cool. Um, it's this place. They've got a drive through there, and uh, you can actually go there um, or even do it from the convenience of your own computer, you pull up the right website, you go to the right building, you pop in the right number, like four-digit code, and you will have an exact printout of exactly how much worth you have sitting right there in a screen right in front of you. They're called banks. And for many people, their bank accounts become the idol of their day. The investment account, the 401k, the IRA, the, the whatever it is that you have, becomes the idol of our day. And we offer our offerings of worship toward our wealth and security financially. For others, man, food is a great idol in our culture. Man, we figured out a way to like, figure out a way to like, we're angry if it takes more than five minutes to get a burger. Like right over there, you can go to a place like and actually complain if it takes more than five minutes to go get a burger. Um, It's food and will go by many of those establishments. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying that if you go to a bank and check your account balance, you're obviously commi- you're, you're committing an act of, of worship to another god and you're a horrible person. I'm not saying that. But if you maybe spend more time worrying about your bank account balance than you do about the god who has resourced you with the money to have in the bank account balance, maybe there is an act of worship that's occurring to a god other than Jesus. All I'm saying is I think maybe this morning it's time for us to realize that if we really believe that Jesus is Lord of all, if that really is at the core of what we believe and it's not just something we've spoken and think that since we've professed it out loud as, uh, in, in our words that, that then we're good and we can do whatever we want to, but if we really believe that's supposed to be the framing idea of our lives, what sets the Christian apart from anybody else then maybe we just need to think about what are the things that I'm tempted to add in, the other gods and goddesses, idols and shrines that I'm tempted to add into my worship of Jesus? What are those things that I'm tempted to try to add into my religious experience with Jesus or not give over to him fully and completely? What are those things that I try to leave outside of his umbrella of lordship. I, I got this, Jesus. Like, I know that you're like Lord of all, but like, seriously, I'm pretty sure I can manage my investment account better than you can. So I got this area. I'll take care of my, my money. You, you do you, Jesus, all right? You didn't even have investments back when you were around Jesus, okay? All right. So this week, we're kicking off a brand new sermon series. You have no one to blame but me. I didn't steal this from anybody else. I haven't thought of this from anybody else. It's not from the lectionary. This is just something that has been on my heart. Over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about, and it's going to get close to home because Jesus gets close to home. Actually, he gets right in your home, right up in your business. He doesn't leave anything out of bounds. There is no out of bounds for Jesus's engagement in your life. And so we're going to talk about if we really believe this, these words— That Jesus is Lord of all. If that's really what we believe, then we're going to talk about some different areas of our lives where I've just noticed, anecdotally, just my own kind of, you know, watching my own life and others' lives out there, some areas that we tend to erect idols in or we tend to be tempted not to allow Jesus to be Lord of. And so over the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about things like money and resources, wealth, we're going to talk about things like dreams and desires of our, for our lives. We're going to talk about things like your relationships, familial relationships and friendship relationships. We're going to talk about things that are going to get into oh, all sorts of other fun business, like our safety and security obsession in the U.S. <laughs> and maybe what Jesus being Lord of all speaks into that space At times, this might rub up against your particular political leading. I'm not telling you what you have to vote, but it might rub up against that at times. It might rub up against some areas that you just don't feel comfortable allowing Jesus to take lordship of. And you know what? If that happens, that's great, (laughs) because Jesus is Lord of all. He's proven it by coming, Yahweh putting on flesh, coming and living amongst us, dying on a cross for our sins and then raising to life three days later. And so this morning, as we kind of launch off into this idea of Jesus being Lord of all, we're going to go back to the Lord's table. I told you two weeks ago we were going to do this more often. Some of you didn't believe me, Um, all right? Some of you didn't believe me, but honestly, this is the story that shapes us. This This is the act of worship that reminds us that Jesus really is Lord of all because he allowed his body to be broken, his blood to be poured out for the sins of the world, to prove and to stand as Lord over everything, to win the victory, to just be able to stand there and go, I am Lord over all, even death, sin, and the grave. And so I'm going to ask our worship team to start making their way up. They're going to lead us in a song as we kind of reflect and make our way to the table this morning. But as we do that, Maybe the question that I think is maybe for us to reflect upon this, this morning as we make our way to the table is, as we launch into this series, what, what are those things that you're tempted to make an idol out of? What are those things in your life? What are those things in our world? What are those things in our culture that you are tempted to make an idol, erect an altar, offer a sacrifice instead of going to to the one who is the Lord of all as we have professed. What are your idols? And then maybe confess those to God this morning as we make our way and work our way towards the table this morning. Would you pray with me?